I'm Laura Max Rose, mother of two, and you're listening to Look Ma No Hands, my candid dispatches from the front lines of motherhood. I ask the real, tough, honest questions on motherhood-related topics that we're all wanting to know more about, in hopes it will make everyone's journey fulfilling, easier, and more joyful. If you're not a mom, welcome. I want you to know how happy I am that you're listening and that these topics can be applied to any season of life. I'm grateful you're along for the ride. Welcome back to Look Ma No Hands. I am your host, Laura Max Rose, and I am joined today by another podcast host of the Motherkind podcast all the way from the UK. Welcome to the show, Zoe Blasky. I'm so happy to have you. Oh, I'm happy to be here. Zoe is a friend of mine. I, we met 11 years ago. Um, I was living in London and working for Turner Broadcasting at, on an internship through my college. And I, many, I've written about this many times, so perhaps you've read my story, but if you haven't, um, I essentially pulled a geographical. Life was very chaotic for me. I was in a very challenging relationship, and I decided going all the way across the pond would somehow make all of that a little easier. If you've ever done something like that before, you know it's usually quite the opposite, and for me, it definitely was. Um, I was lucky enough that I was being paid minimum wage and could not afford therapy because I found my way into something that had been suggested to me for a very long time. Um, I grew up in a family that was affected by alcoholism, and I had been told by many a therapist to try going to an Al-Anon meeting, which is a 12-step recovery program for people who've been affected by somebody else's drinking. I never went. I never thought it was for me until I was finally desperate enough. I got on a train in London headed to a meeting and um, never looked back. It was the most life-changing experience I've ever embarked upon. And in about my third Al-Anon meeting, this, I'm sorry, Zoe, but this absolutely gorgeous woman (laughs) walked into into the meeting and I thought, I need to get to know her. Um, And she just had such, such, she'd been in recovery for probably about three years already and um, was the first person that I'd seen that felt like, this real example, probably because she was close in age to me, of what my life could really look like if I were to keep going down this path and going down this road. Um, So I was able to stay in London for six months and hear all of Zoe's wisdom firsthand. Um, And later, as our lives moved on in different directions, I moved back to Boston and then to Houston. I rediscovered her and found that she had started um, number one iTunes family podcast in London, the Motherkind podcast, after having her own child. She now has two kids. And um, she described starting that podcast because she wanted to start a conversation that she didn't hear being had. Um, All the conversations around motherhood were about wine o'clock and what type of gin to drink if you are having a hard time. Um, And she had been in recovery for a really long time, but found that having children brought all of that anxiety to the surface. This was certainly my experience, and I wish I had found the Motherkind podcast sooner, but I guess I found it just on time. So per Joey's web. For, per Zoe's website, she's on a mission to help you be kinder to yourself, to realize the truth of who you are, a perfectly imperfect mom trying to be her best in every single moment. And she wants you to become your, your own best friend and find your joy for life again. Spending even just a minute on Zoe's Instagram um, is like heaven. It just feels incredible. And, and it's, a, it's a wonderful tribute to letting go of the perfectionism that I think has burdened the modern mother. So Zoe, again, welcome. And I would love to hear from you 
what freedom from perfectionism really means in your life today. You talk a lot about it on your website and you actually have a course that helps people find freedom from perfectionism. What even is, what is perfectionism and what does that look like um, to be free from it? Well, firstly, I have to say that um, that made me well up just, just remembering about those early days of recovery and um, yeah, it made me feel really emotional actually because I remember you walking in and I remember, you know, the connection between us because we were lucky, you know, I was 23 I think when I got into recovery and I know that you were younger and there weren't that many um, young people. So um, yeah, it just really took me back. It really took me back. And I love thinking about those early days. So thank you for that. Um, Of course. (laughs) Yes, so perfectionism. Well, the reason that I talk about perfectionism so much is because I think being a, um, I call it being a modern mum because I think being a mother in in these times is, is more intense than arguably it has ever been because we are living really fast lives you know digitally enabled lives you know our parents even a generation ago you know did not have smartphones they didn't have availability to this massive information and opinions and images and you know literally within a nanosecond um also you know what i see is that so many mothers are living miles away from their extended family now that might be a good thing um right you know, depending on the level of function that, that there's in that family but i think what what really is the hallmark of our generation of mothers is this kind of really high mark really high bar that we set ourselves and a huge lack of support so i so, so i kind of started to you know with my recovery lens thinking well what is it that I do and I can see other mothers doing that makes this much much harder for ourselves and perfectionism is one of the really big ones but what's really interesting about perfectionism is that when I kind of studied it and worked with clients on it and worked on it myself and started to dismantle it I really saw at its core that it was about not feeling enough and when we don't feel enough we then compensate and when we compensate, we do things like, you know, hide how we really feel about things or push ourselves to work too hard because we're craving that validation. Um, or we might, um, you know, not let ourselves rest properly, think that self-care is selfish or beat ourselves up if, you know, we think that our house is too messy or whatever it might be, however it might um, manifest. So, yeah, I got super interested in perfectionism and and motherhood and um, I started coaching lots of clients on it I you know I've been working on my own recovery from perfectionism for years and um, yeah so I wrote this course to it's a really short course it's only 20 days and it's only for 10 minutes a day because mums have no time right so I'm like I'm not going to write an in-depth it's perfect yeah 10 minutes a day Um, and it really seeks to dismantle how perfectionism manifests for you like it manifests differently for everyone for me it's definitely around work procrastination is massive for me um which makes everything in my life harder um, procrastinating because i think oh no there must be a better one or a better way or a better thing um being stuck because something needs to be perfect and yeah, being just done right? yeah yeah and i so like catch myself doing that all the time like we had to get my four-year-old a new bed um and i'm like browsing these websites and 
you know, I was doing it for about an hour and I was like, no, that one's not quite right because of that bit. And that one's not quite right because of that bit. And that one's not quite right because of that bit. And I was like, oh my God, shit, if I can swear, I'm totally of stuck course. in my perfectionism right now. I'm like thinking that there is this perfect bloody bed for her. And my job is to find it regardless of how long it takes me. Um, so it's really oh, yeah. insidious, this stuff. Like it's, you know, it's so insidious. And so, you know, I instantly just caught myself um, bought one that was 80%, you know, and my husband actually is currently putting it up, but I said to him, you mustn't drill for the next hour. <laughs> I'm doing a podcast. Um, so, so it's really Isn't insidious. It's amazing how hard it's like an hour of quiet in your house during a quarantine. It's like yeah, completely it's hard. It's hard. Yeah. You'll probably hear, I can hear my four-year-old singing. So you might hear that. Um, it's, so I love it. Yeah. So, so how, t- I'm interested. How does, how does perfectionism manifest for you? Well, yeah, I mean, I've been thinking about that as you've been talking, and I think when perfectionism started to rear its head in my life, when I became a mother, I was always very aware of my perfectionism. I I always called myself a recovering type A. When I got into recovery, Mm -hmm. I was very type A. Everything had to be perfect. I was top of my class, and there was a huge transition for me. Yeah, there was a huge transition for me from when I left college London, and then when I returned home my grades, my grades actually really stayed the same, but the amount of time I spent studying and in the library and needing to just like overwork myself had drastically gone down. And I became way more just type B. And I was very, very proud of that. When I had a kid, it was very interesting. I was immediately triggered by all of the momstagramming that occurs um, when you have a newborn baby and everything, like the baby is perfectly swaddled and the nursery looks perfect. And those are the photos that I was seeing of other moms Um, And I, my life looked nothing like that. I mean, we were living in a two bedroom apartment at the time my husband was running for office. I was more exhausted than I'd ever been in my entire life and nothing in my life picture perfect. Um, And I wasn't able to really stop and be in the moment with my baby because I was thinking about, you know, the perfect baby wearer and like crib blanket or whatever it was that I needed her to have. And later on, I think it showed up as, um, and you talk about this a lot, which is something I makes me want to like run out in the streets and tell everybody about your podcast because it's such an aha moment for me. You talk about this a lot. Um, I got obsessively focused on parenting, but I forgot Mm -hmm. about parenting myself. So I had every parenting book in the entire world. I could tell any of my friends if they called me, I mean, I would get phone calls like, Oh, my kid did this. Um, you know, I blew up at her. What do I do? How do I handle it next time? I had like a script for every occasion, but I had completely forgotten why I was losing my patience in the first place and what was really going on with me, which was that I, I had forgotten to take care of myself and what that really looked like. Um, I needed to be the perfect mom. And, um, it's amazing how quickly that happened (laughs) and how unable I was to, to see what it was taking away from my life. And you talk about like the culture around wine, which you are, you have written about this. You're, you're like, I'm not an alcoholic. I've had a very challenging relationship with alcohol throughout my life and decided six years ago to do a dry January. And it evolved into six years of sobriety for you because your life has just gotten better and better. So um, for me, I mean, it was very easy to fall into that. I mean, taking the edge off of this challenge to just have this perfectly clean house, all these things that you kind of actually associate with like 1950s America, but for some reason were (laughs) completely taking over my life, having this perfectly clean house, um, having, you know, my kids just very well taken care of, 
um, and kind of forgetting about what it, not even, you know, on the outside, everything looked very good. Um, I can take care of myself. I get dressed every morning. I do my hair. I do my makeup. I look well, but it was my passions and what brings me joy and being able to walk outside and without my makeup on (laughs) and just feel like I'm good enough. Um, and that I have to tell you the quarantine that we have had for the last two months has been such a huge gift. I mean, I really feel like my house is upside down right now. Um, and I've come to see that like what really matters is these connections that I have with my husband, with our children, that's what matters. And, um, I've been able to rediscover what brings me joy because it just wasn't working anymore to make everything. I'm completely out of control of this situation. We're in a pandemic. I, I can't make everything perfect for my kids. I've never had less control in my life, but what I can do is I can take care of the person in the driver's seat. Um, and that's me. And um, I've read so much that you've posted that's really helped me. You talk about micro, you have micro self-care ideas yeah. that you share. Um, I would love to hear more about those for people who haven't necessarily discovered them um, on your Instagram yet, which they will. Um, tell me like some of the ways, you know, we as women, not with grabbing a gin and tonic, <laughs> can stop and really give ourselves some rest. So I think... Um... I loved what you were saying about how you effectively, you know, loved your kids so much that you forgot to love yourself. And that was definitely my experience. And I think, you know, what I learned was that, you know, I'm, I, I am a person because of the dysfunction that I grew up in that I will use anything that comes into my life to, or I used to, and, and that wiring is still there to avoid myself because I don't want to sit with my feelings. I don't want to, um, you know, think about some challenging things that might be going on or, or my behavior. What I want to do is just avoid all of that and focus outside of me. That's kind Mm -hmm. of my modus operandi, you know? So when my children came along and it sounds like you had the same experience, which is interesting given that we have the same kind of family background, is that for me, it was like a really perfect way for me to just utterly avoid myself. I'll just focus all yes. on them. It's like, it's almost like drinking um, in some ways, <laughs> even though even though it's a good thing to some extent, right? We, we absolutely have to focus on our children. And for the first three months, we do have to forget about ourselves because the babies are so needy at that time and mm-hmm. rightly so. But, you know, as they get older and that behavior starts to become ingrained, um, that's when like you said you know we can get obsessed with this idea of parenting instead of course of thinking that parenting doesn't really exist like for me I'm starting to understand it that parenting is really just about being a model because I don't know about about you Laura but my mum like she said all the right things to us you know, it wasn't that she told us to have low esteem and she told us, you know, to look outside of ourselves of validation. Of course she didn't. She told us the opposite, but I learned through what I saw. Right. So right. that, that was like a really profound moment for me when I realized like, ah, hang on a minute. I'm saying all the right things, but I'm actually not living them because what my little girl even though she's only one or whatever is seeing is someone who is in their disease right now you know in an Alanon language you know someone who's in their dysfunction because I wasn't able to 
focus on myself you know all my focus was outside of myself on on them and I thought hang on a minute if I keep doing this this pattern's going to repeat itself another generation and I don't want that yes. so it's kind of like yeah. it's really counterintuitive that actually that the, the best thing that we can do for our children you know is not actually dressing them in the cutest outfits and making sure that the food is always perfectly pureed. That's not the best thing to do for them. The best thing is to, is to model what it looks like to be a fully alive, you know, connected to our feelings, present woman, mother, human. Like that is the best thing to do because, because that is what, my girls your girls anyone's children are learning from they're like sponges you know zero to seven all our beliefs about ourselves in the world are programmed of course we can reprogram ourselves that's what you and I have done but it's it, my kind of goal was like actually I would love it if my girls could grow up with a sense of esteem having watched what it looks like you can't tell someone what esteem is they have to see it and then in a way like live in an environment where that is the that is um that's kind of bubbling in the air you know rather than like criticism or watching a mother you know martyr herself or watching a mother numb her feelings with alcohol which is what you know i i saw growing up um so yeah i mean that that was like such a light bulb moment for me and um, that's kind of why I started Motherkind, because I was like, right, who's talking about this? Um, and I only found one person, and that was, that was Glennon Doyle, who you and I were just chatting about. Um, and she had a blog called Mummistry, and she would talk about a lot of this stuff, because she's also in recovery, and so would use the same language. And, but there was no one in the UK at all. There's no one talking about it. Maybe Which is amazing, because now, I mean, you've, through, you've done 100 episodes, but you've really kind of like established there's sort of a community of people who are speaking this language, who are talking about motherhood in this way. But I think because you had your oldest around the time that I had mine, this was not a conversation that was being had about motherhood at all. No, it's and I really changed. Yeah. yeah, it's really changed. And it's, and it's fascinating to me. I mean, that now I know, you know, having kind of leapt into this, you know, and I've read lots and lots of academic books and studies. And, you know, there were lots of, um, psychologists and doctors of psychology talking about this stuff but not in an accessible way so um it was kind of hidden in journals or in quite kind of ther therapy led books like um you know adult children of uh dysfunctional parents of, of emotionally unavailable parents sorry you know that's a great book and that talks about a lot of what i'm talking about but it wasn't in a kind of accessible way um yeah. and that's really what i wanted to do was to think about, okay, well, how, how can I talk about this shift that I've come to see? Um, I'm super passionate about the generational angle, um, simply because I can see this pattern down seven generations of my female line. Um, well, so you talk about the generational angle a lot. Yeah. So for anyone yeah. who maybe doesn't, isn't familiar with that, let's talk a little bit about that. So you talk a lot about generational trauma. I've read mm -hmm. that you, you posted once you had a therapist tell you that um, healing one person can last seven generations long in the mm. thread, that that's what healing one person can do. And you've also interviewed, I believe it was Mike, is it Mark? It's Mark Woolen who did yeah. the, who yeah. wrote the book about, um, this is not, didn't start you. with you. This yeah. didn't start with you. Yeah, yeah. About generational trauma. So what is it that you know about that and how, um, as mothers in probably the most stressful pinnacle of our lives, we can 
we can pivot from what it is that we learned when we were growing up. Yeah. So this is like, this is quite at the, um, you know, like if we were talking in belts, you know, like in judo or something like you would be getting to uh -huh. the kind of brown or black belt starting to think about this stuff. Like you don't want to start thinking about this because this is, it can be, you know, if you haven't ever looked back um, at your family history or you haven't ever kind of made the link between, um, you know, maybe how your parents were parented and how they parented you, um, you know, that can be quite intense work. So it's an overwhelming place to start. Definitely. Exactly. Exactly. So Something I would always say like, later. yeah, you, you don't want to necessarily, although everyone's different, like some people that might be just the catalyst they need. But the first thing I would say is kind of, you know, this isn't necessarily, if you're dipping your toe into this kind of work or idea, you might want to think about you a bit more and, um, you know, what it is that you're doing that you think you might want to change and why, but because I've been in recovery, a long time I'd done a lot of that work and I got super interested in um how I was parented I got super interested in that and and the impact that that had on me particularly around emotional availability um and by that I mean the extent to which a parent can can hold their own and and someone else's feelings you know I didn't have that mm -hmm. so I did lots of reading and studying about what happens to children when their parents can't see and hold their feelings and typically what happens they call that trauma now which again is kind of is kind of new language because trauma used to be thought of something a big event that happened and you tend to get diagnosed with PTSD or something like that and there's this kind of new wave of thinking about 10 years or so this new way of thinking that trauma with a little t it's sometimes called which is where you didn't get seen or heard or validated yeah, so, I think a lot of people can identify with that, but they've never heard of being called trauma. So exactly. it's like, oh, well, nothing bad really happened to me. Exactly. So um, if we take, if we take feelings, because that's kind of like the most simple one that I can think about. So my mum's mum had trauma. She had trauma with a capital T. She was actually um, a foundling. She was dumped on the steps of a hospital in London when she was two days old. So, so that's kind of the, the first trauma. So she then had a mother who had her own challenges and dysfunctions and wasn't able to teach my nan um, how to feel feelings, how to connect with herself, how to process emotion, how to use emotion as signposts in her life. So my, my nan became an overeater to numb her feelings because if you're not taught what to do with feelings, they're petrifying. And, and why yeah. would you not try and run from them? Right. Of course you would. Anyone would. And everyone does if they're not taught. Absolutely. So then she had my mum. And because my nan didn't know what to do with these feelings, when my mum would have a feeling they would get shut down too. Um, so, so then my mum, you know, grew up to, to have, um, her, her own big challenges, um, some of which landed me up as we were talking about in, in Al-Anon. Um, and, and then my mum had me. <laughs> so you can sort of kind of see like, actually, isn't it interesting? Like, how was I ever going to become someone? And this is just with talking about feelings. We could talk about this with any kind of behavior, but feelings is helpful because it's, I think it's, it's, it's a more obvious one how was I ever going to become someone who was able to feel their feelings? Because my nan had never learned it. My mum had never learned it. So I just got taught exactly the same thing, which is that 
when we have feelings, we shut them down. Now, clearly that was never said, but that's what I saw. So that's what I did. I, and as you were describing, uh, you know, at the start of the interview, you ran into work in order to avoid feelings. Me too. Like I overworked, I overachieved. I would do anything to avoid myself because I couldn't, it felt too scary for me to sit with pain. I didn't know, I literally didn't know what to do. I had to learn that in, in Al-Anon and in therapy and other healing work that I've done. That's a new skill that I had to learn. Because I've now learned that new skill, I'm now passing that on to my daughters. So you could say there's like a chink in the chain. Does that make sense? There's like Absolutely. a chink in the chain now because had I not done that work, I would have told, I would have still been numbing. I'm pretty sure I would have, you know, been drinking a bottle of wine every night to cope with motherhood. I definitely would still be overworking. Um, I would probably be in a far more dysfunctional relationship than I find myself in, you know, and that's what my girls would be witnessing. And then they would be likely to repeat that. So well, it's, it's almost like, is, go ahead. Sorry. As you say, it's almost like language, like is another way that I find it useful. Like if you grew up in a house where you speak English, where your family around you was speaking English, chances are you're not going to suddenly start speaking fluent French chances are you're going to start speaking English and if we think about emotions and behavior as a language then of course and that's what I love about this work and talking about this stuff is it takes a lot of the judgment off of our parents off of ourselves because it's not our fault it's not their fault it's actually no one's fault it is just the way it is um, that's just the language that they got taught and the language that we picked up but we, right. can, we can change the language if we choose to do the work as we would call it or choose to get interested in ourselves or if we choose to get interested in personal development or you know yoga even or meditation like many 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 ways into the same thing um which is becoming more conscious of the language that you're speaking to carry on the the metaphor you know the language that you're speaking and is it working for you or do you want to change it do you want to learn a new one entirely or do you just want to pick up a little bit of different different words on the side does that make sense so it's kind of like it for me it just really takes the judgment off everything um but also is quite hopeful and that's what's so amazing about this is that we don't have to carry on the the pain or the dysfunction or the sadness or the mental illness or whatever it is that that might have been in your family um we don't have to because our brains are neuroplastic which means that we can we can literally rewire our brains through new behavior we, we they've shown that now so i find that really exciting um but again like i just was like no let's talk about this i'm super passionate about this i want to talk about it um so that's kind of i'm talking about it more and more and more um because i think it's so fascinating and i think it really helps as well because when mothers become mothers often they i've noticed a lot of resentment can bubble up to their mothers um and i've and this kind of conversation i think really supports in taking away a lot of the blame and the judgment for how we might have been parented because I, I really think there's no for me today like i have so much compassion for both my parents because i know they were just doing the best with what they had how could they have done any different yeah that's well i, I mean motherhood is such a gateway into either being able to explore what you just discovered or being completely over. I mean, it is one of the most, it is the biggest challenge that I think many people um, ever face 
just mm-hmm. as much as we, we love our children so enormously. I remember when my first child was born, just sobbing, like my hormones were dropping and saying, you know, it feels like my heart is outside of my body and I, it's never going to go back in and, and I want it to go back in. Like I felt so vulnerable um, to the world around me and it, it did, it continually feels like my heart is outside of my body. Um, but it reminded me so much of the way Um, you know, I thought that I had healed from so many of the things that had happened to me growing up. And then I looked at my own child and was just repeatedly reminded, I mean, you just talked about motherhood bringing up a lot of our resentments towards our own parents. I mean, yeah, like watching these things happen with my own kid and remembering how I would have been treated in the same situation when she makes, when she drops something, when something breaks, remembering just being obliterated for these tiny mistakes and then handling them differently. And I think when you're, when that's constantly in your face um, as a parent, which is what it is. I mean, kids are our greatest teachers, as you've said many times before. Um, it's like, we can either run from it or we can run into it. And, and if, yeah. we, if yeah. we look at it, it's a tremendous opportunity to heal from the way that, from, from our own pain um, and to do things differently. Yeah, and, exactly. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it, it, it's, it's very, it's an extremely intense position to be in. And there's so much awareness, at least I know for me that has come up since becoming a mom, things that I never, that I thought I had already either figured out or understood. And, and then there's a whole new wave of it. And you're seeing really how your behavior does affect a child. So that that realization really is what kind of pushed me to get so into the parenting approach and how can I parent, how can I do things differently than my parents did yes. for me? And what I found was that I was still skipping myself. Yes. Um, and the I was problem still... with that is that you pendulum, right? Yes. Right. Oh so my you, gosh. you just go the yes. other way. Like you become, you might've had, you know, an emotionally unavailable mother cause she was in her pain. And then suddenly you're like, Oh, I don't want that. And then suddenly, you know, unconsciously you're too might be coming emotionally unavailable because your heads are in the heads in the book trying to make it perfect all the time so it's exactly. like it's the same result but you just pendulum the behavior that's why it was used. the same result and I kept walking around I had this constant feeling that like you know I love my children so much but I know in my heart the way that I'm doing things right now they're going to be overly dependent on me because I'm making everything perfect for them our life is like just everything structured there's no room for things to be, to go awry because there's a plan for everything. And, um, I'm also like giving them a completely unrealistic idea of who I am and what reality is because I'm blazing, I'm glazing over myself essentially to try to be patient and kind and perfect. And I'm, I I can't be that all the time. So (laughs) obviously there's another side to that. And that's what they're seeing. They're seeing somebody who's pushing themselves completely to the brink to provide a great experience for them while losing herself in the, in the, in, in the middle. So the idea of being a model and not a martyr, which is what you just interviewed Glennon Doyle about, if you haven't read Untamed, read it. It's amazing. Um, has just set me free. I did an interview with somebody else about that recently, and we just talked about that for a really long time, that especially during this pandemic, Um, show your kids what it looks like to let go, to rest, to relax, to take care of yourself, you know, like give yourself all of the grace that you could possibly give someone during this time so that they see what it looks like to really love yourself when things are hard. 
Yeah. Um, and that's what yeah. our kids need. And, and what a gift that is. What a gift that that's like the best parenting tool we have. Yeah, right? exactly. exactly. <laughs> and also, you know, when we, when we do that, it's like a, it's like a triple win, right? I sometimes call it a triple win because the, the first thing that happens is that you are modeling what it looks like to love yourself. So mm-hmm. surprise, surprise, your children are then have the opportunity, you know, there's no guarantees. They have the opportunity to then do that too. For themselves right the second thing is when we say things to our children like you've had such a busy day you know why don't you sit down and we'll read a book or you know let's put a movie on you know let yourself rest you've had a busy day but they see us having a busy day pushing 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 actually what that does like from a therapeutic angle which is fascinating is it actually can break the trust on a small mm. level because it's like well you're telling me that I need to do this, but I'm not seeing you do it. And this is all subconscious, of course. Oh, that's so powerful. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I don't know if you had that. I had that a lot growing up. Like, oh, you're so, yeah, you're so beautiful. You can do anything you want. Exactly. And I'd be like, but like, hang on a minute. You're, yeah. <laughs> you look like you hate yourself. And I yeah. can kind of see that you're dying on the inside, but you're saying this to me. That, that actually can, I know my experience of that was that I felt really unsafe because I was I like, like, I, can I trust what you say exactly therefore can I trust myself um so that's the kind of second win which is like when we're congruent you know when we say like rest is important in our house Mm-hmm. We don't say rest is and we're all resting. for Not you. Rest for is you. important rest. for you, or you know, eating well is important for you. But me, I'm going to stuff my face with these chocolates. And clearly, right. doing that, doing <laughs> that, like you know, a few times a week is not a problem. Like this is real life. But when we're doing that constantly about everything, it uh-huh. really can like break the trust um, and the connection. And it's really confusing for children if there's incongruence. So I kind of think about like what are the values in our household not how am i parenting you know like okay rest is important how am i resting play is important how am i playing like esteem is yes how am i what am i doing you know joy is important connection is important so i kind of don't tell the girls like what to do per se um these are on big things like clearly i'm like you know you need to go to bed now like we're not boundaryless but um but it, right, I, think right. it's, I think it's easier because they see that guy and i are doing and living what we say is important for them so so that's the kind of second win and the third win is of course that you you i totally believe this you know that you are a better parent when you are giving even 10% of your time and energy to yourself even 10% so if we think you know a 15 hour day which is the kind of average parenting day 10% of that would be like an hour and a half for you and it sounds yeah. like nothing but how many mums give themselves an hour and a half like very None. few I hear very like 10 few. minutes I mean I hear people saying like oh I had five yeah. minutes to yeah like, I'm yeah like five and that's minutes. 10% of your time yeah. and energy for you it's nothing and if someone even said, oh, I'll give you 10%, I'd be like, well, that's not much, right? If Guy said right. to me, my husband said to me, I'll give you 10% of my time, I'd be like, oh, but that's, we don't even do that for ourselves. So yeah, what, an hour so, and a half, I like that. So again, like, what are we telling ourselves about ourselves? 
you know, like we're basically telling ourselves we're not important. Yeah. I've started thinking about all the things that I want for my kids or want them to feel about themselves. And instead of somehow impressing that upon them, giving it to me. So do I ever want my kids to feel like they can't leave the house without their makeup on? No, I would die. I mean, like I would feel horribly. Right. Yeah, exactly. Um, But that's what they see me do. I mean, so, okay. I'm going to give myself permission to do that today. That's, those are the things that I'm going to do. I'm going to give myself permission to rest when I'm tired, um, have a snack when I'm hungry, take time to be with my friends when I've had, you know, a long day at work or school or whatever it is. Um, we give these things so freely to our children, but it's more difficult for us to give it to ourselves. And I think that's one of the greatest things that the challenge of motherhood can present to us, which is an opportunity to give ourselves the things that perhaps we never had. Um, And speaking of things that you never have, I think Mm -hmm. becoming a mother, one of the most important ingredients for sanity is sleep. Um, We tend to lose a lot of it. And you've written a little bit and, and talked a little bit about ways that we can perhaps feel like we've slept, even if we haven't, which I've loved some of your suggestions. Um, you talk about like, you know, putting your legs up the wall. And I think it was a, like yoga nidra, um, like several minutes of this can equate to several hours of sleep. Yeah. Um, if you want to talk about some of those things, because I know you have a six month old at home right now. So sleep is scarce. And I remember those days and I remember how challenging it was for me and how little conversation there was about it. It was all like just have four cups of coffee and go and like put your hair up in a bun and figure it out. And there was rarely a conversation about how much a lack of sleep can really affect us Mm. mentally. Yeah. So a lack of sleep changes the way that your brain works. And, and, you know, it's so interesting because there've been amazing books written about sleep. Like um, there's a really famous one called why we sleep by Matthew Walker. And it's just interesting to me that that kind of link hasn't, really been made on the level that I think it should between what it does to mothers particularly new mothers um so so when we have a lack of sleep our brain chemistry changes now I am not a doctor of you know neurology this is but this is this is my kind of layman's understanding of it that really helps me is that our prefrontal cortex which is responsible for managing our emotions that gets downgraded Um, And the part of our brains responsible for emotions gets upgraded. So basically your control center, which normally when you want to freak out would be the, would be the releasing some hormones to help you calm down. That stops working in the same way. So you're essentially what, what this means is that you're on the edge. Mm -hmm. That's not, that's not your fault. You've done nothing wrong. That's the way that your brain is handling a lack of sleep. Okay. Heightened, heightened emotion. So what I really kind of talk about and I need to hear myself at the moment is like when you experience, and it is probably a when rather than an if, like sleep deprivation and the next day you just feel like bursting into tears. That is not because you need a new husband and a new life and a new whatever, (laughs) or, you know, you might be single and you just think if I had a partner or you might have a partner and think I need to get a divorce. You know, that's, that's where our minds can tend to go. You know, when we're we're sleep deprived, it's really just remembering that that is brain chemistry. (laughs) And and when you get some sleep again, you chances are you won't feel that way. So it's about being really kind to yourself. The first thing I notice this all the time is like with clients, like, they'll be really struggling with something and getting quite overwhelmed. And I'll say, well, how many hours did you sleep last night? And they'll be like three. 
okay so do you think that that could be impacting how you feel right now and typically the answer will be oh my god I didn't think of that so it's like remember that lack of sleep affects and permeates utterly how you feel about yourself and everyone around you so I think everything everything so I think that's and and to be super gentle with yourself like we can as you said like be sleep deprived in a severe way I think um I think you lose 700 hours of sleep in the first year I'm sure I read that it's it's astronomical the amount of sleep I've heard it takes six years to catch up to to catch up yeah exactly exactly after having a newborn that's true I'm sure that's true and then most people throw another newborn into the mix you know at some point during that phase if they if they choose to have more children so you know it starts again doesn't it but um yeah yeah so I think I think it's just being super kind like ridiculously kind like when my four-year-old hasn't slept very well the next day I'm like sometimes I keep her off nursery because I'm like you're not going to be able to really have fun because I can see you're tired you know I would never still probably give myself the day off because I'm tired so it's it's um you know I think it's about being super kind the other thing about sleep is thinking about energy So we all want to feel like vital and have energy. And often we can think that sleep is the only way to get that. And of course, it's like one of the main ways. Um, But also it's important to look at, you know, what's draining your energy. So you talked about it, didn't you? Like cramming those parenting books and having to be perfect. Like that is exhausting, exhausting. So is people pleasing, you know, saying yes when you really want to say no. so is kind of that feeling of just like your old life slowly disintegrating before your eyes, which is what happens, yeah. I think, when you become them. It's, it's also yeah. exhausting. So mm-hmm. even though we can't get much sleep, you know, for the first couple of years, I think there, there's lots of things we can do. Like you said, there's lots of kind of hacks that can make our body feel like it's had more sleep, like meditation, yoga, nidra. But also I think it's important to look at where am I leaking my energy? Mm. Like I don't have much sleep at the moment, but I actually feel quite energized because I love what I'm doing. You know, I have really good boundaries these days. I don't do anything that I don't want to do. Um, well, I think this you know, quarantine too, like I know over here, like you guys are pretty much in, in somewhat of a quarantine right now. It's kind of wearing off here, but I, I've had so many conversations with people about how this has really shown them what they really want to spend their energy on yes. because they've been locked in their house with their family. They can't say yes to anything. And they're like, wow, I really didn't want to be doing all those things that I was doing. Yeah, exactly. Um, and they were taking up so much of my energy. So and time, your time and energy, and you know, time is such a precious resource. It's the one resource we can't ever get back. And it's yeah. just, it's just so, um, it's so freeing, isn't it, to to be able to get some healing from perfectionism and people pleasing in particular, to be able to have the confidence to go. Do you know, this is how, just for right now, I want to live my life. And, or this is how I want my house to look and you can come over and it's going to look messy and I'm not going to judge myself for that. You know, that is so freeing and energy giving, you know, or or ending friendships, you know, or leaving that mum WhatsApp group. 
that literally oh. like drains your energy. The best feeling. Leaving Every, all, we have Facebook yeah. groups like here, like their mom, there's mom WhatsApp group, Facebook groups, but I'm just like, never again. Get no. me out. Yeah, Do not invite me. Some yeah. people find them really uplifting and energy giving. That is fantastic. But mm -hmm. if you don't, like get out of them, leave the WhatsApp group. It's like your energy is such a precious resource as a mum. It's, uh, it's anyone, yes. in particular as a mum, because you've got to share it with other humans, you know, like, you know, and you've got to look after them. And so it's thinking, how can I, how can I protect my energy? Um, so think of it as like a balance sheet, you know, how can I make sure that there aren't too many things on the negative side draining it? And what can I do to kind of put some into the plus column? Like what gives me energy? Is it actually, you know, going for a walk on my own gives me energy or does that drain energy from you if you're an extrovert, you know, or is it phoning friends that gives you energy or does that drain energy from you? You know, it's just the self-awareness and starting to think about, you know, what, what is going to help me feel, um, more kind of vital during these really exhausting and intense, you know, early motherhood years, early parenthood years. Well, it's funny because if I think of the one thing that I care about outside of my family more than anything, it's my podcast. I love it. It's my favorite. It's the thing I've always wanted to do. I was struggling to really turn it into what I wanted to turn it into before we were all quarantined in our houses. And then we got quarantined and I was like, oh no how am I going to make this work when I don't have my studio? I was recording it at a podcast studio. Um, I'm not gonna be able to meet with people face to face. Like it's going to be, and it's so funny. I immediately started recording like four times more often than I usually do. Yeah. Um, really talking to people that I've really wanted to talk to for a very long time, because when I had no time at all, I took whatever time that I had to make room for what really, really mattered to me. And that was it. Like that was the thing that mattered the most to me. And I was going to find a way to make time for it. And I'm not making time for anything that doesn't really, really matter to me anymore. And that's something that I want to carry with me um, going forward. And I've heard so many people talk about wanting to carry that with them, just really having this way to reprioritize what matters and that making me so much more available for the things that do like my children like my family. So you recently recorded your 100th episode um, of your podcast. Congratulations. And um, you shared a post just tell about, you shared a post talking about the episode, um, which was all about what you've learned over the past 100 episodes of the Motherkind podcast. And one yeah. of the things that you shared is that fear is an ever constant companion of a life well lived. Yes, I've come um, to learn that. I didn't used to I know love that. It. <laughs> I didn't used to I love know it. that. <laughs> well, I thought that so I wanted true. to be fearless. Well, I thought I wanted I thought the goal was to be like fearless. And I yeah, didn't really no. understand that actually if feeling you the live, fear and doing it anyway. Yeah, or I yeah, and, and if you live a life that is expansive fear is always going to be there because you're always doing something new trying something new pushing the boundary and fear kind of comes with that it's like it's just part of the package yeah um, it is part of the package absolutely so my last question to you and I could honestly stay on this phone call all day um uh, you did you six years ago and you've talked about this and we brought it up briefly during this interview um, you wrote a blog post about how you embarked upon a dry January. You're not drinking in the month of January. That exists in the U.S. as well. And you just never stopped. Um, and you still aren't drinking today. And you talked about how becoming a mother, um, there was a lot of discussion and a lot of 
um, just cultural references to using alcohol as a sort of aid to making motherhood easier. I have certainly more than been there. Um, and I found very recently that it's honestly makes everything in my life more challenging and it really disrupts my sleep. So yeah, there's yeah. a double whammy. Um, tell me more about what that looks like just for me and anyone, <laughs> anyone listening. Um, I think that there's so many strong associations with using alcohol as a coping tool in motherhood that we actually don't even realize that there are examples outside of that. So, um, I know a question that you've probably gotten asked before is, okay, you're not having a glass of wine to take the edge off at night. What are you doing? What are the things that really help you feel like you can handle the day? And more than that, um, what has six years of sobriety lent you in terms of just being able to have the life that you really want and the life that you find yourself living today? I think the idea of... Um taking the edge off now I mm -hmm. don't I genuinely like I don't have that feeling when I put the kids to bed I feel tired sure I might feel stressed but yeah. because I live by these principles right which is that I'm I have a deep trust in life so if mm. I had a really really shit day and it all went to shit I kind of trust that it was meant to be that way and that there's something for me to learn or I had to have that shit day for, you know, maybe, you know, there's a behavior that I need to look at or, you know, I don't think, oh my God, that was such a shit day. I need to numb from it. Can I say something about that actually really quickly? Cause if this is something that you're considering for any reason, um, that feeling of taking the edge off with a glass of wine, it, it perpetuates itself. And I found this by trial by my own life experiment. So I didn't used to feel like I needed to take the edge off of anything either. And I started taking the edge off, which made me feel every day like I was looking forward to taking that edge off. And after about like a week or two of not drinking, there was no more edge. Yes. It goes away. Yes. And, and it makes you, my experience with alcohol, everyone is different. Like I would t never tell a mum to stop drinking. I will just share my experience is mm -hmm. that alcohol made me edgier. Yes. Alcohol made um, me anxious. It brought up my over overthinking, analytical, crazy head would go bonkers with a glass of wine. And I would start analyzing every conversation I had at the play group. Did that mum think that I was mean because we chatted, but I didn't go and say bye. Like oh, my mind would I just so relate. Yes, my mind absolutely. would just go nuts. Like, yes. you know, um, and so, so I knew that about my mind when I became a mum. Like I knew because I, I, you know, I was sober before I was a mother. So I thought, you know, there's no way that I'm gonna start drinking now because I can imagine what a ridiculous state I would get in. And then I would need the alcohol. You know, it's like, mm. it's like a spiral, as you said, you know, it's, yeah. it's so, so I think that's but what we don't realize is that like, just for anyone out there, I mean, like what, what I think we don't realize and what I certainly didn't realize is that, um, it, it becomes like kind of, it becomes difficult to imagine how you can quote, get through that bedtime hour without having a glass of wine to look forward to. But what we don't realize is that even going without it for like a week or two, that desire is gone. Like in that short of a period of time, like it's really not. It's not something that lasts forever. 
And what ends up happening, at least this is what's happened for me, which is so incredible, is there's nothing to take the edge off of. And I'm actually able to enjoy that time. Like I, I, I appreciate it so much more. I'm in it. It doesn't seem like something I need to wind down from because I'm not as edgy. Yeah, exactly. Um, and I think it's like, it, it seems so overwhelming to think of like, this is this coping mechanism that's been so widely accepted. How am I going to like back away from it? But um, it's like really not, it, 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 it perpetuates itself completely anyway, which, I, which I've already said, but yes. Anyways. Yeah. So um, go ahead. Yeah, so I think I think that that's the first thing is I just don't have that I just don't have that feeling anymore. I remember what that feeling was like when I when I was drinking in my kind of late twenties, um, and I think it's looking at you know what alcohol what not drinking alcohol gives me like it just gives me such clarity of mind. I don't really have anxiety anymore. I used to have crippling anxiety. Um, I have so much time. Like I don't think I'd be able to do the podcast if I was still drinking even like a glass of wine a night um so it it just give it just gives me so much um but i would never tell i have no idea what's right for anyone like no idea you know for some yeah. people they can have a glass of wine at night and it is you know it it does feel life giving and it's enjoyable and that's that you know and 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 who who am i to judge you know and i think everyone finds their way um with this stuff at the, the time is when the time is right. That was my experience. You know, I kind of knew that I wanted to stop drinking for years before I did. Um, yes. I had that same experience. Yeah, and I also years, have the same I would... experience of like feeling like I have no, this is not something that I necessarily think everyone, I think that there are tons of people out there who have glasses of wine and they're fine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, exactly. Exactly. I and I get, you know, yeah. yeah, exactly. For me, it just, it just, it, you know, I sort of thought to myself, when I was thinking, okay, so I've done this month off alcohol, should I go back? And I was like, did it make any area of my life better? And I thought, well, mm, it kind of made socializing not better, but easier. It definitely didn't make it better, actually, because I would go into mm, chronic overthinking when I would leave a social engagement, having had a drink, as I was describing, like hypervigilant hypervigilant observation of what everyone thought of me and you know I've become really egocentric and it was horrible but it made it easier yeah. um in some ways you know joining in you kind of get that instant um bonding with a, especially with a new group of mums you know let's share a bottle of wine you know it's, it's it made it easier to connect even though it's not really connection I don't think um yeah. but other than that I was like no you know nothing else it made nothing else in my life better so I was thinking why would I why would I um you know then start again and and I kind of you know I don't I'm not in AA like I'm not you know I'm in, in Al-Anon as you were sharing so it's not that I call myself you know I'm not, I wouldn't relapse if I had a glass of wine I could have a glass of wine whenever I want I just choose not to because my life is so much better without it it's so much better without it and I think it made it easier because three years ago yeah, so I'd been, I hadn't drunk for three years. And then three years ago, Guy, my husband, he kind of was like, do you know, I don't want to drink either. And I think just watching me stand in that confidence space, you know, and it's given me a confidence. Like I didn't used to be able to go to a dinner party or even like a work thing without clutching onto a glass of wine as a crutch. Um, yeah. And now 
I don't have that crutch. And so it kind of forced me, like, I'm super confident now. Like I can walk into pretty much anything anywhere and, and be fine. And, and because I've trained myself, you know, I've taught myself that I don't need that crutch and I'm interesting and I have things to say. And, you know, so the confidence that it's given me, it's kind of incredible. Um, and also, you know, because I grew up where alcohol was, was abused, I didn't really want to be, have alcohol around um, in our house, even, even in a really functional way. I just didn't, you know, I have no problem with people drinking around me or anything like that, but I just didn't really want my girls to see me drunk or having multiple glasses of wine at the end of the day, or I just, it's just something I did not want in my life. And it's been the right decision for me and, you know, for our family. and. Um, I love it. I have to say, I absolutely love it, but it's so long now uh, that I, it's kind of just, I just don't think about it now, if I'm honest. It's just yeah, not it's a thing. Like subconscious. It's, just, it's right. just not a thing. Like I never think about it ever. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> that's amazing. Oh, you're so, such an inspiration, Zoe. Like I just, I'm so happy to have gotten to talk to you and, um, I just love if you're listening to this right now, go hop on over and listen to the Motherkind podcast oh, because thank you. so many beautiful interviews. And you can visit Zoe online, um, motherkind.co. Um, you yes. can take her course on perfectionism. Yeah. And you even offer one to one coaching as well. Yeah. I, I, right now I don't. I've got a really long wait list. Um, but I'm going to be doing some group. I'm going to be doing some group coaching and some um, more online courses. And so, yeah, if someone joins the mailing list, then they'll, they'll get to hear about all of that. Wonderful. Thank you for joining us, Zoe. And thank you all for listening. Again, I am your host, Laura Max Rose. You've been listening to Look Ma No Hands, and I look forward to joining you again next time. Thank you for joining me for another episode of Look Ma No Hands. I'm Laura Max Rose, and you can follow me on Instagram at Laura Max Rose to stay up to date on upcoming episodes and the behind the scenes of my life with my own two daughters. If you like this episode and are enjoying Look Ma No Hands, the best way you can help me spread the word is to leave a review on Apple Podcast. This is the single best way to help me reach a larger audience and share these conversations with everyone who needs to hear them. If you love something you just heard, you can also take a screenshot of the episode and share it on social media. There might be someone you know who needs to hear what you just heard, and that's another great way to make sure they do. Thank you for joining me every week. I'm grateful for each and every one of you. More next time.